So I'm part of a um, Facebook group that's a Christian D&D community. Okay. <laughs> um, overall, it's pretty good. Like, it's mostly funny D&D memes. Um, and occasionally some, like, good discussion and such. But then you get, like, the weird... Um, it's like, I created a paladin with a custom Yahweh deity. It's like, no. No. Stop. <laughs> I was... Um, that's like... I was working on... Okay. <laughs> I have a... That's like the joke I was working on making about a mm-hmm. Facebook group called the Christian D&D community. But it's real. But like... Oh. Oh. But no, the the worst recent one, because like, the, there's a crossover between those who play D and D and those who play Magic the Gathering, right? Oh sure. Um, and so someone posted a custom card. Oh no. On here for Magic the Gathering. That's sure. Jesus. No. <laughs> First of all, no. Second of all, like, there's so much wrong with it. My eye was immediately drawn to, um, so his creature type. No. he's a creature that you can I don't summon. like, I already don't like that he has a creature type. His creature type, he has, he has two creature types. He's first god, is one creature type. And then his second creature type is holy spirit. Okay. No, <laughs> that's modalism, Patrick. That's what I was about um, to say. It feels like that's like four different heresies. Like, what? what is the one about where Jesus is a created creature? Because it feels like... That's we Arianism. Into... Yeah, yeah, duh. Yeah, it yep. feels like you're, also, you're both modalist and Arian. Yep. <laughs> Just, guys, stop trying so hard. <laughs> Just don't try so hard. Oh, I remember. That's, that's that's kind of the the Lutheran response to um, the Reformed or evangelical groups. Just, get, just don't try so hard. <laughs> I promise, it doesn't have to be this difficult. <laughs> I was, as a result of my coworker Brendan asking me what the difference between Presbyterian and Protestant is. Um, oh boy. I ended up trying to sort of explain the difference between like the Lutheran Reformation versus like the Calvinist Reformation. Mm-hmm. And now I kind of want to describe it in terms of like the Chill Reformation and the Intense Reformation. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> it's like the Lutheran Reformation was like, I mean, we'd rather just not even do a Reformation. Like, we'd rather just be Catholic. We certainly don't want to mm-hmm. like make things difficult by making our own and meanwhile the calvinist reformation is like burn it all down (laughs) we need to start from scratch all of this is crap (laughs) like now we're the new church fathers Hello, gentle listener, and welcome to Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. I'm your host for this episode, and my name is Ethan. And this is my guest, Michael. Say hi, Michael. Oh, hi. Oh, that's... Sorry, you caught me with my pants down. I'm Michael. It's pretty weird energy for you to just, like, bring the the microphone. I almost said microwave. So we're off to a flying start here. Uh, it's pretty weird energy for you to bring the mic in with you to the bathroom when you had to go. Like, you know, we can like pause the recording. Like I can edit this later. So like you, you can just say I have to go to the bathroom. But where's the fun in that? Really? We should just like lay it all out there. Just bring everything into the bathroom or bring the bathroom everywhere. Why not that? (laughs) Well, uh, given that we are talking about Gargantua and Panagruel today, that does actually seem like a pretty valid philosophy slash observation um you know the the classic the subtitle in the french i think is actually gargantuan panagruel bringing the bathroom everywhere (laughs) um 
And that's just the first of many bathroom jokes and references you can look forward to on this set of four episodes mm-hmm. of Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. Uh, We're in for a ride. That's so, definitely... This one's number one, right? Yes. This episode? We are going... number one. We are the going, next episode, we're going number two? Yeah, number. we're going number one for right. this episode. We're going number two. The next one. And then we are going number three after that, which is like... I'm not even sure what that is, Yikes. but... I'm sure Rabelais will tell us. Rabelais would probably yeah. have an answer. You know what's pretty humiliating is like when you're on a podcast trying to be witty and then it's like you just know that if Rabelais were doing this podcast, he would be so much like wittier and more <laughs> naturally funny. Like even <laughs> we could sit in silence. Yeah. You would take it. Even even we're if not worthy. We're like, not worthy. He would be doing it in French too, and he would still somehow be funnier to like an English speaking audience than we would. Mm-hmm. Um it would be in his uh the cadence, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. You can just tell. Uh, isn't that there's an episode of uh Parks and Recreation, I think Perd Happley says it. Um I do not understand what you just said, but it had the cadence of a joke. <laughs> <laughs> I had um one of one of the the people i work for um had a daughter who was about i want one and a half or two and she was really precocious and Mm. she figured out how to do that like she she Mm. her english she couldn't talk yet and her english wasn't i don't think her understanding was great but like she would listen to when the sound of sort of people telling a joke was and she would laugh and sometimes it was like really (laughs) eerie like you'd be making a joke about, you know, it's it's Bastille Day and the the French are storming the castle, and she would just be listening really intently and laugh at exactly the right place, and it's like, there's no way you understood that joke, or if you did, that's even more terrifying. <laughs> One day you will rule the world, child. Exactly. Um, I, yeah, I would not actually be surprised if that does happen. Um, anyway, we've gotten uh. Uh, we've gotten off off gotten uh, mm, i'm not gonna say that uh we've become distracted uh and by that i mean there's a bottle of scotch right here michael that's uh really staring at me and um i can't wait to get it inside me um the scotch not the bottle uh yep uh though you know what any of us do with the bottle on our own time is uh none of the podcast business so let's Outside open this up. Of the realm of the podcast. <laughs> exactly. Now, Michael, uh, were you able to get the correct scotch, or do you have another scotch? I was. Excellent. I so we are then both drinking uh, Ben Riach, the Smoky Twelve. Now, if hmm. that set of words sounds familiar to anyone who has listened to this podcast before, especially recently, uh, it is because mm-hmm. we were drinking Ben Riach, the Twelve. Uh, on our last set of sort of main episodes, our, our set of non-special episodes. Um, and I was inspired, I, this, this has come up, this, this got mentioned during one of the, the Fisherman episodes, but I was inspired to have this one be our next scotch because I had to, I was forced, forced to go buy, um, my own bottle of Benriach 12, uh, to record the Fisherman and uh in doing so i discovered that there is benriach the smoky 12 Mm -hmm. and nothing as longtime listeners will know nothing makes me more excited or interested in a scotch than it being smoky uh so Mm -hmm. i like i apologize i have taken sort of the selfish route on this one in the sense that like this might not be a ton different the scotch element of these episodes might not sound a ton different like it might be a little bit repetitive but like i had to know i had to know and i had to force michael to know so um i am also you know i'm interested because it's like i I feel like ben react the 12 was like it was so good and so balanced like with the flavors that it did have that like i'm just i am really you know it could it could be terrible it could be like if you add you know ham-handedly add liquid smoke to you know to certain dishes and it just like unbalances everything or whatever could be something like that i right. doubt it um rachel berry has not let us down yet the master blender at ben Riach, and um mm-hmm. i i hope she will continue to uh uh 
do good work. Indeed, I, I'm I'm mad at you a little bit for for choosing a scotch that is so closely related to a scotch that we just recently had because it's just it, it's it's great. <laughs> <laughs> it was either uh, I had to either do it for this one or wait a long time, and I didn't want to wait a right. long time. Right, like yeah. <laughs> no. And and the the twelve did leave such an impression on us that the smoky twelve seems like just the perfect logical next step. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, and again, if Ben Riach, uh happens to hear this podcast and like what we do and think of us as brand ambassadors of some kind, like we <laughs> we will only ever drink Ben Riach scotch if that's like the deal you want to make to provide us scotch. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, to pull my head back out of the the fantasy land. Um, I think the only thing left right now is for uh, Karen to come here and read the rules um, mm-hmm. so that we may we may clink glasses and uh, get the show on the road. Oh, yes. Hey, Karen. Rule one. Once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two. No one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule 3. Ethan must never say the phrase, first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule 4. Michael must never say the words, vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule 5. If anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. Rule number six. The wives are entitled to one glass of scotch or some equivalent beverage. Rule number seven. If four scotch-centric episodes pass with no losses, then everyone loses. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle Gentle listener. Thank you, Karen. Uh, We appreciate you. Appreciate it. We shall now ceremonially pour... is pouring out a second glass a libation for his wife so that he does not immediately lose soul. oh oh wow okay that that took a weird energy <laughs> i guess you've died on the podcast before it only feels feels right it's that true. sarah should at some point <laughs> yeah, i guess that makes sense <laughs> makes as much sense right. as i mean i know i said the libation word so we're, we're both did. we're did. both the nonsense boys right now yep just a couple of nonsense boys. <laughs> With that, Bachayim. Schlenk. Well, Ethan, now that I have to come murder you in your sleep. <laughs> I mean, same as every other time. Uh, had a little bit of a Dread Pirate Roberts vibe. Good work today. Almost Good. like they'll kill you in the morning. Um, <laughs> now, yes, now that that has passed, uh, we are on to our mondo book um Mm -hmm. for uh 2022 um which is uh gargantua and pantagruel by francois rabelais um yes i've been struggling with how to introduce this book because it's just it is such a such a monument um it's like how do you introduce a mountain uh Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you, look there's there's a mountain look <laughs> thank thank you uh <laughs> now fortunately mountain a, meet person person meet mountain are you good did, did you have any more <laughs> any more you no, wanted to do about that or oh good you sure like i could wait yeah no that's no that's, i'm fine <laughs> okay well 
that's a lie, but anyway. Um... <laughs> Enchanté, Montaigne. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, man, we got to do Montaigne at some point on this show, don't we? Um, I don't know. Have you ever read any Montaigne? I have not. I haven't either. He's the one Shakespeare was super influenced by, right? Mm, or am I possibly? thinking of a different... I think it's Monte. Anyway, uh, none of those things are relevant here. Uh, <laughs> excuse me. Um, what we are talking about, yes, is Gargantuan Pentagram. Oh, I was going to say that, um, yeah. fortunately, uh, we have spent one entire hour already introducing this book uh right. in our in our uh uh last our previous uh episode um we we did just do basically place setting uh for this book so mm-hmm. if you are not familiar with gargantuan panagruel um it, more context for for this book specifically more than any other book even a lot of other like classics or, or older literature like Table setting for Gargantuan Pantagruel is super helpful. So that's why we devoted an entire episode to it. And if you're unfamiliar with this book, um, it wouldn't be a bad place to, to start. I mean, you could also sort of hit Wikipedia or, you know, uh, any number of other things. Um, right. Rabelais is one that kind of like something about reading him really just flows naturally into reading other books or books about him like i even sometimes joke that the main reason you read gargantuan pantagruel is so that you can read uh rabelais in his world by mikhail bakhtin um <laughs> which was referenced on the the last episode um mm-hmm, and i need to read it now yeah i had hoped that i would be able to reread more of it in time for these episodes but unfortunately mm-hmm. uh i was not um but yes, uh, it will probably be referenced either directly or indirectly or both. Um, it's it is, you know that that book is really considered still by um, at least Rabelais scholars that I've talked to is considered like, uh, you know, if if you want to start learning more about Gargantuan Pantagruel, that's the book to start with. Um, yeah, even that was written in the '60s, I want to say, and you know in russia and, and so forth like it's still just considered a monumental uh work regarding gargantuan pantagruel um yeah so uh oh by the way i did uh follow up on something we mentioned in the last episode the three dirty books named by the pick a little talk a little ladies in the music yes. man are uh balzac Rabelais and Chaucer is the third one. Chaucer, yes. Which, like, of course it is. Um, of course it is. And, like, I actually, I read, for the first time, I read a, a version of the Canterbury Tales uh, earlier this year. And mm-hmm. another thing I was going to say about Gargantua and Pantagruel, uh, by way of introduction, is that we've been kind of, like, working our way backwards through sort of the chain of texts that are sometimes uh brought forth as like the first novel um right. or or at least great sort of monumental novels so um you know we like starting with tristram shandy tristram shandy was very influenced by um uh don quixote and then you know don quixote in turn um arguably fairly influenced by uh gargantuan pantagruel and sort of the um sure. the world that it created that's a little bit more of a stretch but you know if, if we were doing a great sort of a great novels course um these these right. might be on the syllabus albeit probably in the opposite order from the ones the order that we've done them um but it, I, you know at the same time i think it'd be interesting to go backwards mm-hmm. that could be a, a fun course in itself that's actually something perspective it's an idea i read somewhere i want to say it was when i was in grad school and was maybe in an essay or something i was reading for my ta program like as sort of a professional development thing Mm. um there was some essay it was just kind of trying to think creatively about like how curricula could could work both in writing and in in literature and um 
I would definitely say anything about the title or the author of the essay if I could remember at all, but I cannot at this moment. Anyway, but it, it suggested that idea, and it was just like the one thing from this essay that just has stuck with me. It was like, the idea it suggested was like, take a modern author at the beginning of the semester, like a recent author, and then like, whatever, you know, they say as their major uh, uh, influence, you read that that person next, and then take one of that person's influences from before and read, you know, and sort of work backwards in, in time that way. Um, if we were, uh, you know, like, like Brandon Taylor, who we read a couple, a couple books ago, um, he's been very influenced by Henry James. So you'd start with like filthy animals, then you'd go back and read, you know, the turn of the screw or portrait of a lady or something. And then like, whoever Henry James's influence was maybe like a Jane Austen or something. You go back mm. to that. Like it's a, it is a super interesting idea is working backwards chronologically, partly because it's like you are put in the, in the position of whoever's reading that novel contemporaneously. Like you, you know, I don't know. This is, this is a pretty, mm-hmm. this is a pretty, we're, we're wandering. We're already wandering. We're only, yeah, we're only 15 minutes in, uh, <laughs> Nothing has had a chance to take effect yet, and yet my personality has just led us all over the place. Um, uh, it's your personality. No, so, the, but in the in the context of the history of the novel, sort of like the so this is a contender for the first novel, which yes, of course begs the question: What do we mean by novel? Right. Um, and depending on how you define it that's how you come up with your answer for right. what the first one is which is and which one is the one that defined what novels are which is the literal definition of um begging the question is when exactly you have the the premise uh, or that you have the answer in the premise of the question or whatever right um yeah and that's like because because the obvious the other version of that obviously becomes like could the, how could there be a first novel because whoever the first novel would be would not be writing a novel. They'd be doing something else. Right, um, right. They're starting off by writing something completely different. But yeah. then it becomes something new. Yes. Something novel. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. Ha, 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 ha. See? Um, <laughs> so, yeah. I, and, like, I'm becoming increasingly convinced that we we can't we can't know like whatever if anyone wants to tell me this is the first novel of anything whether it's gargantuan pantagruel or don quixote yeah uh or anything i i sure you can think that but i don't i don't think you can say that (laughs) i guess yeah i guess you know and and i i think i say this every time this comes up i'm more interested in it as like a framing device Mm -hmm. than as like a question in and of itself but even even as far as framing goes like more the more i think about it the more i talk about it more recently excuse me um the more interested i am in like particular techniques because um sure the most technical sort of definition of what the first novel is would have to be would have to have to do with um you know uh, with technique with you know you're doing xyz um for the Mm -hmm. first time uh you know a lot of a lot of critics talk about interiority like when do characters start Mm -hmm. having an inner life instead of just being sort of masks moving around on a stage um that are only exterior uh you know others others talk about like free and direct discourse like once that sort of the melding of objective Mm -hmm. narration with stream of consciousness once that happens maybe that's you know what truly makes a novel um you know uh i mean this this came up a a bunch of times in the solo special that i recorded about the tale of genji because um i mentioned in that that like the tale of genji you know from the 11th century i want to say um from japan like does a bunch of things that i have seen uh western literary critics claim doesn't happen in literature for another five to seven hundred years as far as Mm -hmm. like even some interiority stuff and some like what looks to me sure sure as heck like free and direct discourse and like inner monologue and stuff um so yeah i mean this is all sort of a restatement of what you just said michael right like right it what whether something is the first novel really depends on how you 
how you frame it. Um, so I guess for... Yeah, and, like, it, it also will affect modern or current contemporary novels as well. Sure. Like, and, and whether they get to be called novels sure. according to that same definition, too. Right. Because, um, you know, I think some who might disqualify Gargantuan Pantagruel from being the first novel for one reason or another would also probably have to disqualify some modern novels. Yeah, and too, that, is, that is... Which they pro- might not have a problem with. No, but... it, it becomes <laughs> this, this... It's sort of a bugbear of, like, modern literary critics who are discussing the novel as a genre is the fact that, like, at this point, every piece of fiction that gets printed like a like a you know word-based mm-hmm. piece of fiction um that is above a certain page length and it doesn't have to be that long of a page length gets called a novel right, right? and right. you know from that that very broad definition is just sort of a marketing slash you know cultural right. thing um but then yeah it, it does it does sort of filter back like if if you're rejecting that definition how do you how do you sort of uh cut and dry it um right and it's like uh how you define uh so this is a weird tangent it's like how you define a a fruit or a vegetable you know whether a a tomato for instance is a fruit or a vegetable that uh age long debate and like the categories are pretty much invented sure yeah (laughs) um depending on your your school right there's the uh, horticultural section there's the culinary section um the and like there are shades in between there too sure um where you know you could even say there's no difference between a vegetable and a fruit right <laughs> in some cases too i mean to quote um, thor all names are made up yeah all names are made up <laughs> right and so like it's it's along the same lines as that i think yeah and i mean potentially a more interesting and maybe more fruitful discussion actually becomes like how has this in, how has this book been influential or on what traditions has it been influential yeah. because um right. you know that's way more interesting yeah <laughs> um i've i've mentioned before that like at some point in the novel a biography uh schmidt uh says bas- and i really should reread that book and like this passage has become important enough to me that i should just find it and mark it and be able to quote it but he says something to the effect that like within within novels within things that are pretty clearly novels even within that there are two traditions right there's there's sort of the well-made novel um and there's like what almost becomes like the shaggy dog novel um and the well-made novel is very you know it would fit probably pretty neatly into like modern how to write screenplay or how to write fiction type um yeah treatments where you have you have an identifiable you know inciting incident rising action three act structure five act structure whichever way you want to slice and dice it um you know guns that are loaded in the first act are fired in the third act um that kind of thing that's like the well-made novel jane austen is an, a right. great example of this um oh yeah uh, mm-hmm. probably henry james i haven't read very much of sure. henry james but um you know people uh, uh authors like that and then there's sort of another another tradition that's like the it's the tristram shandy you know james mm-hmm. joyce um uh uh thomas pynchon tradition where it's like the novel is this just like world that exists between two covers but like within that that world it's a it's a you know it's a shaggy beast of a thing there's tangents there's mm-hmm. you know there's plot lines often dropped or picked up in weird ways like often this becomes a formal experiment or drawn like erratic heartbeats yes um yeah <laughs> and yeah again it, it often becomes a formal experiment where it's like depending on on what like sort of structurally it, it can be difficult to even tell what the story is in some of the more extreme examples right. um certainly ulysses you know often often mm-hmm. gets sort of falls under that you know it, it's the first, the first piece of work you have to do in any chapter in Ulysses is like figure out how to even understand what the chapter is saying, um, right? You know, uh, and and Pynchon is often like that as well, and um, yeah. So, you know, I would I would say to bring this all back to Rabelais, I would say if anything, in novelistic terms, Rabelais falls squarely in that mm-hmm. tradition. 
and a hundred percent i will you know fully cards on the table and again i probably say this every time but like any anyone who knows me knows that one of those two things between the well-made novel and the shaggy dog novel one of them is like a list of my favorite books um <laughs> you know so it's like i and points to whichever house guests <laughs> guesses which one exactly <laughs> No, but like as we were, uh, as we've been like working backwards, you know, so it's not yeah. not precisely, but you know, at, so reading Gargantua and Pantagruel, I'm definitely seeing the influence in Tristram Shandy and Jacques the Fatalist and Don Quixote. Although, like how much they were actually influenced, I can see, for instance, uh, uh, Tristram Shandy and Jacques the Fatalist almost certainly. Right. Don Quixote, I'm less certain, just because I don't know when this was translated into Spanish. Sure. Um, or whether uh, Cervantes spoke French um, or had any contact with this book at all. Um, yeah, my gut my gut is that, like, French and Spanish, obviously not the same languages, but, like, so no. close to each other that, like, maybe, maybe either more likely authors to be able to read, you know, authors who speak sure. one be able to read the other, or translations are more likely to happen more quickly. Right. Um, I feel like that's, you know, as we pitch master's theses frequently, I feel like that's that's a thesis that sure. could be written. Um, I mean, at one point... Find out whether or how much Don Quixote was influenced by Gargantua and Pantagruel. Oh, yeah, that would be a great... I would, I would read the heck out of that. Um, I was going to say, at one point in one of Kundera's uh, books about the novel, um, either The Curtain or the other book... Uh, he like makes a list of authors who were influenced by like heavily influenced by books in languages that they did not speak or read. Um, mm. You know, it's like you know English novelists being English language novelists being super influenced by Don Quixote and right. You know, continental novelists or others. You know, being influenced by like Henry Fielding or Charles Dickens. Mm -hmm. um, I don't remember exactly what the list was, but it was a really interesting. Yeah, like that kind of thing would just be fascinating to study all by itself. And it also like gives me kind of a hope that like because all of that is so true and, you know, the, that like there's so, there is something essential that can be communicated by a translator that like, mm. you know, reading reading great works in their original language is always obviously really cool and really fruitful. But like, mm -hmm. you know, I think that. And I don't know if the novel form is particularly suited to it because of how dense it is, but like that there is something essential that can be conveyed across language barriers is just a really cool sort mm -hmm. of thought for me, I guess. Um, yeah. Did you did you finish what you were just wanting to say? Just saying. I think so. Okay. Um, I think so. I mean, like. I just want to well, make sure we're not. In terms of Don Quixote, like yes. besides this, so I think one of the, the most prominent instances of similarities um, among all of those novels, you know, Tristram Shandy, Jacques the Fatalist, Don Quixote, Gargantua, and Pantagruel, is this um, almost like hero and sidekick dynamic. Yes, sure. Um, <laughs> it's going on, uh, especially Pantagruel and Panurge. Um, right that that we've got in this one um and so that the the uh, parallel in don quixote would be don quixote and sancho panza right sancho pa sancho panza sancho Pan panza sancho panza why can't i get why can't anyway how's it going uh, sancho panza good good it actually good. Um, it occurs to me that would actually be a decent vocal warm-up just say sancho, sancho panza sancho panza sancho panza, sancho panza. Sancho Panza, Sancho Panza. Yeah. A lot of different it's like good, good sound, you know, lip orientations. Mm -hmm. and, you get, and you gotta get that N C H yeah, yeah, yeah. sound and the N Z sound. Sancho Panza. Sancho Panza. Anyway. Alright. Um yeah, it's a good one. So besides that parallel, yeah, there's also I was gonna say get get this... this transition real clean so that I can just neatly cut out <laughs> all of that Sancho Panza content. Good. <laughs> Sorry. Go uh, there's there's also the uh, the surrounding prevalence that's um, suggestible, suggested, suggestive. Suggest, I'm trying to think, suggestive maybe. I don't know. But like the 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 romances, right? Yes, yes, yes. The, the, like the chivalric romances yes. that were popular 
at the time um, for each one's publication, even though they're published, what, like 80 years apart? Yeah. Something like that? Uh, yeah, something like that. Um, yeah, 70, 50, I mean, anywhere. The, for, for, There's a timeline um, in there, too. Panagruel's original publication was about 70 years before the first volume of Don Quixote. Sure. So, like, still, like, that's a couple generations. Yeah, for sure. Um, but still, like, you've got, and they're, they're countries apart, too, right. but um, they're still the chivalric romances that are popular at the time. And yeah. these would seem to be a- adapting such things, but also poking fun at such things. Yeah, um, I meant to, I, I should have gone into this more in our in our play setting episode, but um, one, yeah. one great similarity between Gargantua and Pantagruel and Don Quixote is that, um, I, I mentioned this a little bit uh, in that episode, but... Uh, I think Gargantua and Pantagruel both are extant characters in other um, romances that sort of happen at the time uh, mm. that Rabelais is using and making fun of. Because, like, if you think about, like, the Arthurian lo- romances that we're probably most familiar with from, like, you know, an English language tradition, like, giants show up in those, and I think, like, right. Gargantua and Pantagruel were both legendary giants that would appear in those. So, okay. like very similar in that both are poking fun at a much more sort of you know dramatic or or uh even melodramatic sort of storytelling tradition like um i th- in fact i think i'm gonna go way out on a limb here because i don't i don't know this for sure but i want to say some of the same titles are name checked in gargantuan Pantagruel as are in don quixote like i think they both oh. mention amadis of gaul and maybe one or two others um just as you know perennially popular you know it'd be like us mentioning maybe tom sawyer or something like that just perennially popular like like titles that get you know uh republished and republished Mm -hmm. and you know that kind of thing um so yeah there is a big similarity there um they're both sort of yeah for satirical novels born or satirical works born out of at least partially out of, you know, making fun of, uh, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a more serious genre. Um, right. And that's, that's a question that I, that I had that's occurring to me now too, as far as like the giants too. And I'm trying to remember even from like T.H. White's Once in Future King, um, like, which is obviously not of the same time period, but, um, the legends right. and the, the, the writings, they're like, when I think of, chivalric romances and um uh knights and giants giants are antagonists right like am i is that a modern spin on things or was that always part of it i think that might be a very english thing like i think okay a lot of times the giants are antagonistic in the english you know arthurian legends and and so forth i want to say that like some of the chivalric romances that um don quixote kind of main lines i want to say sometimes the heroes are giants or they're of kind of gigantic okay. stature and i think Gargantua and pantagruel may be drawing somewhat more on on something like that um, so it's it's not necessarily quite as countercultural in that aspect no as... i don't i don't think so i think like giants like, as heroes was a known thing right okay okay i was that i it's not necessarily a huge thing is it no it is a it is a good question though um yeah i think yeah i'm pretty sure about what i just said i could be i could be wrong about it any well uh, the gentle listener can do some research i was gonna say any rabelais scholars uh, string you up listening to this uh (laughs) can feel free to uh direct angry emails towards michael i mean me yep yep any uh if if we receive enough uh emails and messages we will um publicly flog ethan for his sins wow that's a (laughs) i gotta uh hang on uh i gotta go re-edit the tale of genji episode (laughs) um oh okay because i don't know if you have listened to it yet michael but i did tell them to direct all of the angry emails at you um Oh, so I'm in control. Yeah, see exactly. I'm I'm now second guessing that that decision. Yep. You should be. 
You should be. You should be afraid. <laughs> oh, I'm always, I'm constantly afraid. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Uh... Oh, one more thing that um, occurred to me as far as the uh, the historical context. Yeah. In the place setting that like you know in, in the in the realm of things we should have talked about <laughs> in right. that place setting this episode <laughs> um but you know it was long enough um but the the uh existence of print at yes. this time um um i don't think we talked much about that it, it it has a parallel influence on the reformation and also probably on this book itself it's mentioned Within the text of this book, too, which is, you know, like a modern novel talking about all of our technological right. things. I'm not going to uh, out how old I am by giving an example. Um, <laughs> AOL Instant Messenger. <laughs> you know, I feel like even just by saying technological things, um, you've, uh, you can already picture me on a rocking chair I mean, um, on my porch yelling I, at the children on my lawn. That's not exactly that how I always um, picture you, no matter what you say. Yeah, I know um but so like that's that's a, a thing yeah. that's uh significant for this as well yeah, and that's a, i wonder how much influence that had on the publication of the book too that is a great um, point um i mean in as far as influence on publication like there was a huge print culture at this point like you know mm-hmm. if you if you think about like to me, it it almost parallels like the invention of blogs in the early two thousands. Oh, like, yes! You know, Absolutely. suddenly, suddenly, like so many more people had so much access to the ability to just print and publish and distribute ideas, and it became much less of a like thing that sort of the the royalty and the the powers that be could control. Um, and that all has huge ramifications within, you know, just all of history, um, including, like you say, the Protestant Reformation. Uh, what we're, or at least I'm dancing around the edges of, um, is a man right. named Marshall McLuhan uh, right now, who mm. uh, he pioneered a field called media ecology, which just sort of studies the effect of media on culture. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to digress because into into McLuhan too much, Um Look him up, look up Marshall McLuhan, you know, even starting with his Wikipedia page is probably not the worst introduction. And I'm saying this because it's this or I do an hour just on McLuhan. Um, But that said, you know, McLuhan talked about any technology has essentially winners and losers. Anytime a new technology, Mm. you know, gets disseminated into a culture, there are winners and there are losers. And in the Protestant Mm -hmm. Reformation um, or, or with the invention of the printing press, um just very briefly he sort of uh pegged the uh the reformers as the winners of the printing press and the catholic church as the losers because the printing press as i said you know made ideas and and the ability to distribute them much more easily available to people with much smaller amounts of power and money which meant that the catholic church could you know not control messaging as easily while people sort of subverting the catholic church could print you know subversive pamphlets in their in their basement or in their garage you know all the garages Mm -hmm. that they had in in 16th century europe um right so that that is a really classical or classic sort of analysis of um the printing press as the effect of or the printing press having an effect on the reformation you know there are people who will go so far as to argue that like the protestant reformation doesn't happen without the invention of the printing press um right but the other reason, and, you know, on along, the same argument, I think, could be made for Gargantuan Pantagruel. And we might even be able to say that the novel, as we know, it doesn't exist. Oh, absolutely. I think that's like, press. I think um, most people who study this would say that the novel doesn't exist if the printing press never gets invented. I think that's, I think right. that's, um, I, w- I don't want to say inarguable because like, especially we're talking about academic circles like yeah. academics will argue right. about literally anything hey, you can argue anything. sort of like yeah. lutherans <laughs> sort of like lutherans that way yeah um sort of like lutherans. but <laughs> but uh just don't try so hard <laughs> we we had that discussion before the before the, the show before the episode so, like so, yeah, I, no. you can't i'm giving just like a, a peek behind the curtain at episode zero but like it um, it doesn't make any so now i'm gonna have to include anyway it's fine we're just making my I'm life just making difficult. your work harder yeah yeah. As I know you want. Have to you? Do. Se- I wanted to mention this. Have you seen the sitcom Ghosts? No. I just no. Oh, I've okay. been meaning to um, at least check it out, but 
I, I well here here I I highly recommend it. Mm-hmm. First of all, uh, it's a it's a an American remake of a British show. Okay. Um, in the British uh, in the American um version, there's a, a um um Revolutionary War oh, soldier, sure, yes. um, who discovers the existence of Facebook, <laughs> um, and says, "Wait, you mean that anyone of any class or station?" <laughs> can share their thoughts at any time on any subject with everyone what a boon for democracy (laughs) (laughs) kind of what i'm thinking about all of yes well so uh two things one um you know i i I mentioned the whole blog idea earlier and like the print cultures that develop especially in like france and, and england um among other places like they really remind me of sort of the blogosphere when it was a thing, you know, um, mm-hmm. I think blogs are kind of considered to have kind of had a heyday and we've sort of moved on to other things, but it's like, I think the only ones really that exist now are cooking blogs and nobody reads the blog. They just scroll down to the recipe. Yeah. I mean, there, there are others, but they're really, they're either <laughs> yeah, really specialized or they're kind of doing something else or, you know, they're new, they're basically right. news sites, but like, Right. In the again to to like date ourselves, um, I'm going to just go ahead and not be ashamed of of showing my <laughs> extreme age. But back in my day, um, <laughs> you all had a blog. Everyone had a blog. I had a blog. Oh, yeah. um, I had a blog. You know, and there were there were blogs from yours and my blog that was like our mother and four of our most loyal friends were pretty much the readership yep. up to you know world mm-hmm. famous blogs that affected things mm-hmm. on an international scale and everything in between and like you know all these blogs would like there'd be fads or there'd be thing you know and they'd they'd one blog would publish something and then it would spark all kinds of replies or one blog would get really mm-hmm. popular and then everyone else was doing that blog for a while you know doing versions of that blog for right. a while and it's like early early printing culture print culture like was very similar to that where it was like you'd have right. pamphlet wars like actually if you really want to uh, go down a sort of a rabbit hole, like just Google the phrase pamphlet wars. Um, like I did for Shakespeare class in, in college, I did a paper on specifically a, a pamphlet war that happened in, in London in like in Shakespeare's lifetime. And it was basically mm-hmm. like one side i think it was two people i think it was two specific people who were like at war with each other and like one side was you know a puritan guy who thought theater was of the devil and should be and you know brought social Mm -hmm. ills with no redemption and should be should be you know shuttered indefinitely and the other person was like no you're looking at this wrong theater is a great boon um and they would you know they would just publish these pamphlets you just you just sit down and write 40 pages and shoot that off to the printing press and that gets published as a pamphlet Mm -hmm. and then you know the other guy reads it and is like well this is stupid and writes his own pamphlet and you know it's just it's just everybody being wrong on the internet um ad nauseum (laughs) and like if you google pamphlet wars and you get reading about any given one it's always going to be like this nuanced and this like you know Mm -hmm. specific but like if you're the right type of sort of history nerd it's kind of fascinating um and right. believe it or not, I am saying all of this for a reason that is related to Rabelais, which is that, like, oh, okay, you know, Gargantua and Pantagruel and the third and fourth and fifth books are a product of a culture like this. Like, they're they're responding mm-hmm. to things. There are jokes in them that are, like, almost certainly just j- references to, like, you know, things that were printed on the street that Rabelais, you know, was living in. Right. And, and the whatever the reference is is completely lost to time and stuff like that so it's a really sort of chaotic and nuanced place you know situation that these books come out of and yet these books were you know these in 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 uh modern terms you know these are like these are the harry potter of their of their day like they're somehow out of this very nuanced and specific set of genres and, and discourses these books got so popular that they've been reprinted continuously and in dozens of Mm -hmm. languages from the time that they first came out down to now. I don't think Gargantuan Pantagruel has ever technically been out of print. Um, Sure. I I could be wrong about that, but like, you know, um, 
So, so what you're saying is these books are are the the ones who who won the pamphlet wars exactly. Match. I mean, <laughs> that wasn't what I'm saying, but like, I'm gonna. It's good enough. I'm gonna go with it. They they won. They yeah. they came out on top. They they certainly came the out rest. on top in in a very real so, sense. So and and some like we we still have as the the trophies the the heads on the wall of Gargantuan Pantagruel and others were just crushed totally to oblivion and we don't remember them anymore. All right, the amount that you think you're clever for having said exactly what you just said dictates that I'm not going to respond to it. Like. You're just going to have to take whatever pride you have in the fact that that will be in the episode. Um, mm-hmm. That's enough for me. Uh, <laughs> and also, I'm so mad at you. I don't know if I made that clear, but I am <laughs> deeply enraged right now. Um, that's also enough for me. <laughs> so, I'm... Yeah, uh, the other thing I did want to say before we got too far away from Marshall McLuhan, who, again, I'm not going to talk about... Um, <laughs> Is actually so Martin Marshall McLuhan's first like major work uh, was a book called The Gutenberg Galaxy. Um, mm. His book Understanding Media, I think, was the second work, and it's it's the one that often still gets reread today. But The Gutenberg mm-hmm. Galaxy came first, and it was specifically him endeavoring to understand and, and delineate like the effect of the printing press on human civilization. Um, Mm. and as even the scope of that implies, or the, the terms I just use implies, like in his mind, like that effect was massive. Um, he even draws connections to things like the fact that the printing press, you know, uh, sort of trained us all to think in like a left, right, at least in the English speaking world, to think in a left, right sort of fashion and, and to think in, in lines and, and regimented rows and so Mm. forth like he draws a connection from that to like the invention of um the assembly line because like an assembly Mm. line also goes from left to right and like you you know slowly assembled meaning you know in in the sense of like Mm -hmm. building something like you know he he McLuhan at least implies that like the brain structure of someone who would invent the assembly line had to be trained by a culture fostered by printed works and and by by reading you know printed material um that's that's fascinating yeah McLuhan makes a lot of like connections like that that are like fascinating and might not be true but also like they might they're at least provocative yeah exactly and which which is what was McLuhan's whole bag he really just wanted to kind of be provocative and in the sense of like spurring spurring thought spurring you know creative thought or whatever um yeah, so uh, uh, Gutenberg Galaxy, I think, is really worth reading if one likes that sort of thing. Um, but the reason I mentioned the Gutenberg Galaxy, I am staying on t- track. Do it. I promise. You got it. You got this. Uh, the reason I Go. mentioned that is that one of the first things that McLuhan talks about in the Gutenberg Galaxy is Gargantua and Panagruel. And, mm. you know, he talks about the fact that, like, this is, you know, in a in a very real sense, it's literature's first printed classic, you know, and as opposed to, like, a classic that gets handed down in manuscript form or whatever. Like, this is the first great work of literature that's that's created by by and for a printing press. Um, you know, obviously, so, sort of like the first novel, like, whether that claim is is true on the face of it is is certainly debatable right. blah 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 um but this is what McLuhan says and then McLuhan makes much of the fact that Gargantua and Pantagruel are giants and that they are giants sort of mm-hmm. in a world that isn't gigantic you know you might have other works mm. that's like the giants are living in giant land but it's like Gargantua and Pantagruel just takes them and slaps them down in the middle of Renaissance Paris mm-hmm. right um right and so McLuhan literally sort of claimed that this was a metaphor or even an analogy or some some figurative representation of the effect of the printed word on the distribution mm. of ideas that um mm. you know basically the ability to to sort of have an idea or have a thesis, be able to write it out and then print it up and distribute it so widely, so quickly and get it in front of so many eyes, just sort of take certain things and makes them giants in the landscape. 
Um, mm, okay. Now, at least oh. this is my understanding of what McLuhan was saying, and it is from, you know, having read the Gutenberg Galaxy 12 years ago uh, <laughs> when I was much younger and much worse at reading. So, like, but that's that's what I understand. Um, you were so silly then. So it's it's just, it's interesting that you were the one to bring this up, Michael, actually, because, like, uh-huh. I had that in the back of my mind as something I could say at some point, but I, like, wasn't sure it would ever connect to anything that we that we wanted to uh uh actually specifically address um so it's sure. it's fascinating to me that that like it connected so much that it was you that brought it up instead of me having to shoehorn it in <laughs> well i'm glad you had so much to say about it because like it, it was something that was fascinating to me and i thought like there's got to be more to this yeah um so yeah no that's good and that so like thinking about um, these giants, these characters, Gargantua and Pantagruel, in this world, um, I, I don't know how big of a subject this is going to be. So, in the last ten minutes of this episode, maybe we just touch on it right. and we can talk about it more later. But it, there, there are times in the book, books, where it's very clear, very obvious that these are giants surrounded by tiny little human beings, right. and then at other times. It seems like Rabelais just kind of forgot they were giants. <laughs> yes. And they're just walking along same size as other people. Right. Or maybe all the rest of the people he forgot they were normal sized people and now they're giants. Or, yeah. It's giant society. Or at least like um, if they are giants, they're like nine feet tall rather than 9,000 feet tall or whatever. Right. Right. So Gargantua and Pantagruel, or at least Pantagruel, I don't know. I think it's less with Gargantua, but more with Pantagruel. He seems to vacillate in his yes. size. Um, well, yeah, especially quite a bit. Yeah, uh, I forget which which book it is. Maybe it's the end of Pantagruel, where like Rabelais himself or Rabelais' narrator, however you want to phrase that, like travels into Pantagruel, and there's like entire civilizations. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a whole his... town in there. Yeah, and which, is, but then uh, at, at later times, is it's... equated to to like he he floods Paris. Yes. with with his urine. Yes. <laughs> right and then there's that and then at other times there's like you know there's a uh he fits on a boat like what there's there you know in, yeah. in later books they're sailing and like mm-hmm. the boat is is per- is presumably anyway perfectly fine at carrying him um right yeah uh i mean but. you know sometimes like in if i'm watching a tv show i get really frustrated when there's like something really urgent is happening to one character and then the camera cuts to another character who's there and it's like a few seconds back so the character is like reacting but it's like i'm really tense about the thing we just cut away from and really mad that this character is taking so long to react Mm -hmm. and when i express that my wife will just say i mean it moves at the speed of plot and (laughs) you know so, so it's like there's this convention in tv and movies where it's like things in tense scenes do take us however long it takes for the greatest tension to happen um right excuse me so i i've just um in in both my reads of this book uh i just kind of accepted that you know this this uh uh gargantua and panic rule are both the size of the plot like if the plot needs them yeah. to be you know so gigantic that entire towns fit inside them they are and then if it needs them later to be small enough to fit on a boat that like normal humans can also inhabit like then they are that then and i guess you know it's just one of those things that's like you kind of can't worry about it too much no and it like it it doesn't bother me it's just like well i i wonder like how common this was first of all for like any other giant tales how much did they change in size and how intentional Rabelais was sure. or how much he was just interested in the present moment, whatever scene yeah. he was writing about and what size he needed the giants to be for that scene. I guess, which maybe he didn't think about it in some scenes that they were just there. Right. The, and... the sense I've always gotten is, and, and this, this does go back. This is another thing I kind of wanted to touch on about genre and about, yeah. you know, is this a novel versus is this something else? Like it, I, to me and like we we even touched on this a little bit in the play setting episode i said something similar quoting bakhtin that this really isn't literature in 
you know, a way that like Henry James, for example, would recognize. Um, right. This this is, if anything, to me, it feels a lot more like a tall tale or a series of tall tales. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a pretty good analogy, partly because, you know, this is explicitly, this is a folk genre. This is folk stories, yeah. folk tales. Um, and specifically what I'm thinking of is, is a, is a tall tale you get told a lot in grade school in the upper Midwest, um, which is mm-hmm. of course, Paul Bunyan and Paul uh, Bunyan, <laughs> babe, the babe, babe, the blue ox, um, which I don't, I don't want to like interrogate all of like the potential settler colonialism stuff that there is, uh, now that I think about this tale, having been through literature grad school, but, um, <laughs> specifically what I was what I was thinking about is like the fact, you know, there are all these different tall tales about Paul Bunyan and babe. And one of them of course, is that like at some point babe gets loose and freaks out or something and like stomps all over the place. And then his hoof prints become the great lakes. Um, yep. Which implies that babe is like a certain size, but then there are other stories where it's Mm -hmm. like he and Paul Bunyan are like tooling around and they're like interacting with normal folks, but right you know clearly not Bunyan's axe creates the grand Canyon. yeah 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 that's right um Um, so like again that's huge size but then like you say too there's all they they scale down a good yeah so it's it's just like uh figures like Mm -hmm. these you know they just sort of they're the size of the plot they're they're whatever size the plot needs them to be and it's it's much more to say even to say it's like intentional versus unintentional like it's a perfectly valid question, but it also kind of like, it's like not a question the genre itself would ever even consider asking. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, that, I don't know. You wouldn't, you wouldn't like be called, if if this genre were a person is the analogy I'm doing. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't. And you ask them that question. They would not think you're stupid or that the question was stupid they would just blink at you somewhat stupidly because like they wouldn't comprehend what the question is. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I say this not to like dismiss your question, but just as like the only answer, as far as I can even conceive of the only answer that like seems possible to me and maybe someone smarter than me, that's fair. you know, has a different answer, but like that's, that's the best I can do personally. Totally fair. Totally fair. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh yeah. No, I like the connection there. Sure. To Paul Bunyan. Makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. I'm just like I gotta say I'm not trying to be like too too uh uh political or anything, but it's like, man, we really had a, a legend about a white settler creating the Grand Canyon, huh? Um <laughs> Anyway, on that note, uh yeah, I guess I guess the you know to to fully draw a bow on the on the Rabelais thing. What I was gonna say is like this. Yes, Rabelais is inventing this body of tall tales himself. So like we have sort mm-hmm. of a consistent author in there, but he's you know as far as I can tell, he's like he's inventing tall tales. Like yeah. I, I often envision like our last read of Tristram or our our read for this podcast of Tristram Shandy. You know, was probably my fourth or fifth read all time and i hit on this technique of like i would just imagine whatever narration uh tristram was doing at a given time i would imagine just like that he and i were sitting at a pub in maybe i even said this in the episodes we were sitting at a pub in 18th century england and he was about five pints in and I was mm-hmm. buying him a six pint and that that was prompting him to start on whatever story. And like, if you envision a lot of the narration in that book as just like, uh, not plastered, but somewhat inebriated, like English mm-hmm. gentleman who's like, not pompous in a self-important way, but sort of satirically pompous. Like it makes an awful lot of sense. <laughs> and this book, this book, I sometimes envision just Rabelais, like, Having like, similarly, you know, three or four beers in, having been bought another beer and being asked to like tell a story and whatever like, you know, thing that that Panagruel and Panerj get up to, it's just like the story he needed to tell in that moment for whatever reason. Yeah. That makes sense. Um. Yeah. <laughs> Michael, anything else you needed to add in this episode? 
No. All right. I think I think we'll be good. All right. Because uh, we are running right smack up against our time. Um, so that said, gentle listener, thank you for uh, listening this far. Uh, please join us next time when we might even discuss the actual contents of any of these books. <laughs> um, please, please feel free to read along with us. I gotta say, we forgot to, and by we, I do mean me, uh, full responsibility to leadership, but forgot to uh, pause and give you a chance to read these books. Um, (laughs) I really do not think it would matter if you listened to all our episodes and then read it, if you read it and then listened, if you did something in between. Um, I don't think there's any such thing as a spoiler for for this uh, book, really. There's really no. Um, No. So that said, uh, please read along with us, whether whether you uh, have already read some or all or not. Uh, please give us your feedback. Um, head over to uh, tapestryradio.org. Put Scotch Talk in the subject line of the contact section. Um, that'll help us uh, sort out which missives are for us. We'd love to hear your thoughts on Gargantuan Panagruel. Um, if there's enough of them, or if they're, you know, interesting enough, uh, they may appear on a future episode of this show. Um, Mm -hmm. that said, uh, we are also at Room with Scotch on Twitter. I am at Bjartlett on Twitter. That's at B-J-A-R-T-L-E-T-T. Michael, what do you want them to know about you? Um, I am on Twitter at M-G-L-I-L-I-E-N-T-H-A-L. Um, yeah. Very good. Uh, if you like this show, check out our other shows, um, on the Tapestry Radio dot, the Tapestry Radio Network at TapestryRadio.org. Um, we have Intermission, our backstage audio drama podcast. Uh, we have Us Play Fiasco, uh, Fiasco RPG Real Play podcast. You have Freddy Goes to a Podcast, another book podcast that you might especially like if you like this one. That's a show where three mm-hmm. grown men read through the hundred or so year old Freddy the Pig children's novel adventure series. Um, mm-hmm. We also have Pokemon Rollout. Michael, what's that? It's the Pokemon Tabletop United Actual Play RPG podcast. Thank you. Um, and just remember, uh, gentle listener... Until next time, uh, it's our party, and we'll cry if the giant Panagruel fills our town with his urine. (laughs) That'd be so sad. (laughs) Thank you, bye. Bye. Obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our our fancy fancy to to yours. yours.